Welcome to Legal Aid New South Wales Early Appropriate Guilty Plea Podcast. This is the fourth podcast in our series of five, during which we'll be talking about the Early Appropriate Guilty Plea Reform, which is also known as the EAGP Reform. My name is Kepi Waters, and joining me today is Rob Hoyles and Nick Ashby. We're from the Early Appropriate Guilty Plea Implementation Team at Legal Aid, and we're all practising solicitors in the Criminal Law Division at Legal Aid. You might have seen us if you attended one of our 30 or so training sessions around the state. So, why are we here today? Well, in this series, we hope to give you an explanation of the EAGP reforms. We're going to refer you to the relevant legislation, and we're also going to talk about some of the operational aspects of the reform. So we'll also give the lawyers tuning in some suggestions and tips for how to deal with the EAGP matters. We hope that this will add to your reading and understanding of the legislation. And Rob, what will we be covering in this podcast? Well, we covered case conferencing and the case conferencing certificates in our last podcast. So in the next few minutes, we will talk to you about the procedures around the committal for EAGP matters, including the new witness hearings and the changes to how issues of fitness to plead or fitness to stand trial are dealt with. So there are some pretty big changes to what we used to know as committal. Is that right, Nick? That's right. The major changes are to the powers of the magistrate. The power of the magistrate to decide whether or not there was enough evidence for the accused to be committed for trial has been abolished. So the power and also the power of the magistrate to discharge an accused after assessing the evidence has also been abolished. So what exactly will magistrates do now? Well, magistrates largely have a case management role in committal matters. They're still... Um, be responsible for committing an accused for trial or sentence and transferring committal matters to higher courts. And they still have the power to direct prosecution witnesses to give evidence at witness hearings. Okay, so Rob, let's talk about witness hearings. A witness hearing is kind of like an old contested committal hearing, is that right? Yes, but without the magistrate's power to discharge the accused. And so without the power to discharge, can you tell us what you think the purpose of a witness hearing might be? Well, there could be multiple purposes, but a witness hearing could be an opportunity to assess the strength of the Crown case, where perhaps the case turns on a particular witness and their evidence. So if the witness's evidence at the hearing was perhaps inconsistent or they lacked credibility, would you be able to persuade the Crown to withdraw a charge or downgrade a charge? Yes, that's one possibility. On the flip side, if there's evidence that was really strong, it might influence your client to change their position, um, to plead guilty and still get their 25% discount um, for a plea of guilty because the matter's still in the local court. Are there any other ways that you would suggest a witness hearing could be used? Look, there are a number of different ways, and we can't really discuss them all here, but one of them could be um, to resolve a factual dispute. If you could resolve it in the local court, you may be able to avoid the, uh, the, the loss of a discount on sentence if you, if you were to try to resolve it later, for example, by running a disputed facts hearing in the district court. So tell us, uh, Nick, how do we go about applying for a witness hearing? Well, you make an oral application to the court. Um, If the application is made under the new Section 82 of the Criminal Procedure Act and the parties agree, then the magistrate must give the direction. Section 82 sounds a bit like the old Section 91 of the Criminal Procedure Act, is that right? That's right. The old Section 91 test of substantial reasons is now set out in Section 82, and the old Section 93 test of special reasons is now in Section 84. So if the parties don't agree, or it's a Section 84 application, what happens? Well, then the magistrate can hold a hearing to decide the application and can ask the parties to prepare written submissions. 
Can you tell our listeners what the likely time frame for submissions is? Well, the Chief Magistrate's practice note says that you will be given two weeks for submissions to be made and the DPP will have two weeks to consider them and respond. Are there any witnesses that can't be directed to attend like there used to be in Section 91? Yes, there are. Section 83 sets out the types of witnesses that can't be directed to attend. They still, for example, include a child sexual assault complainant. Okay. So, Rob, in terms of the time frame in this process, when can we apply for a witness hearing? Well, the legislation effectively um, doesn't specify. It just says that it must be um, after the charge certificate is filed and a prosecution or defence lawyer can apply to cross-examine a witness. So that essentially sounds like any time after a charge certificate has been filed. Does that mean you could apply, say, after a case conference? Look, the Act appears to allow for that, but the local court practice note suggests that if you don't make an application immediately, um, in the period just after charge certification, then you're taken to have later abandoned any witness hearing application. Okay, so there are some pretty significant changes in terms of when we might think about a witness hearing. There have also been some pretty big changes to the procedure for dealing with fitness too. Yeah, that's right. Can you give our listeners a quick idea of what we are talking about when we talk about fitness? Sure. So when we talk about fitness, we're talking about an accused person's fitness to plead um, and or their fitness to stand trial. We're talking about their capacity to plead to an offence and their capacity to understand trial proceedings uh, or to raise a defence. Have the principles around fitness or unfitness changed? No. So the, the test that's applied hasn't changed. The common law principles um, in the decision of the Queen against Presser um, is still the appropriate test and sets out the procedures for dealing with fitness, although the procedures themselves for dealing with fitness have changed. Okay. Um, so, Nick, perhaps you can tell us about those changes to the procedures for dealing with fitness. Sure. Well, first and foremost, fitness can be raised at any stage during committal proceedings. Are we, as defence lawyers, responsible for raising fitness? Not necessarily. The accused or the DPP could also raise it, or a magistrate could raise it of his or her own motion. Okay, so if it's blatantly clear from the outset that our client is unfit, we could tell the court? Uh, yes, but the client could only be committed uh, to the district court after a charge certificate is filed, or if you've raised it after a case conference, then they could only be committed after a case conference certificate has been filed. Um, Rob, perhaps you can tell us about the tests that the magistrate is required to apply in deciding whether or not to commit an accused on the issue of fitness. Sure. Well, if it's raised by the defence or a prosecutor, the magistrate must be satisfied that it's been raised in good faith. The magistrate isn't required to make a substantive assessment of fitness themselves, like a judge would in a fitness hearing, say, in the district court. Would we need to tender our psychiatrist's report on fitness to the magistrate? You might. A magistrate has the discretion to ask you to provide a report before committing the accused. And so, essentially, this process allows us to fast-track fitness matters, is that right? It does. Practically speaking, you would want to ask the magistrate for an adjournment to get your report before raising it to have your client committed. You wouldn't want to just raise fitness without first having a pretty firm basis for it, like an expert's report. Okay. So we know that fitness or unfitness can fluctuate with some clients. What would happen, Nick, if, despite our expert's opinion that they were unfit, that our client was later found fit if they were committed for trial? Okay, well, thir Section 13A of the Mental Health Forensic Provisions Act sets out the new procedure for dealing with an accused who is found fit after committal for trial. And can you tell us what does Section 13A say? 
So 13A provides for an accused to be remitted back to the local court. So an accused could apply to go back to the local court or the court could order, order that on its own motion. The court has to grant an application for an accused unless the court is satisfied it is not in the interest of justice to do so or a case conference is not required for the particular offence. So if we go back to the local court under that process, where does the process of, or the committal process start? So we go back to the case conferencing stage. Basically the proceedings continue as if there was never a committal for trial. Uh, even if you had a case conference before, you would probably want to have another one uh, or continue any negotiations before committal for sentence or trial. Would we really need to go back to the local court if our client was going to plead guilty to the certified charge? Not at all. If you have your client's instructions to plead guilty after fitness has been determined and your client has been found fit, then the plea could be entered there and then in the district or the Supreme Court. If the plea is entered as soon as practicable after the fitness hearing, then your client will still get their 25% discount. Going back to the local court, on the other hand, would only help if your client wants to make an offer they haven't made before. Why is that? Well, if the Crown rejects your offer, say, in the district court and then later accepts it, your client wouldn't get their 25%. If your client is found guilty of a reasonably equivalent offence to the one they offer to plead to, they also wouldn't get their 25%. If those offers are made and recorded in the jurisdiction of the local court, a 25% discount would be applied in the higher court when it comes to sentencing. Okay, so we're going to talk more about the sentencing discount scheme in our next podcast, but it's pretty clear from what you've said that there are a number of important considerations when we decide whether or not to actually fast-track a matter to a higher court on the issue of fitness. So let's talk about the general procedures for committal for trial and committal for sentence. Um, Rob, is it fair to say that basically unless an accused person pleads guilty, they will be committed for trial? Yes, a magistrate has to first accept that plea and they can also reject it, but generally yes. So when would a magistrate reject a a plea of guilty? A magistrate can refuse to accept a plea in certain circumstances um, where the magistrate thinks an accused needs legal advice if they say unrepresented, but other than that it's really a case of timing and section 95 and 97 explain when. What would happen if an accused person was unrepresented? Well the matter would go ahead as if the plea had never been entered the magistrate would give an accused an oral and written explanation of the process. This is required by section 59. The terms of the explanation are actually set out in the regulations. So do accused who are legally represented get given this explanation too? Yes, they are. After a charge certificate is filed and before the case conference, the magistrate must give the explanations. There are slight differences in the wording for represented and unrepresented accused. Okay, so you mentioned Section 95 and Section 97. Can you take us through those provisions? Yes, Section 97 says that a guilty plea can't be accepted before an accused can be committed for sentence. An accused can only be committed if, for example, a charge hasn't been certified yet and the prosecutor agrees to the person being committed for sentence for that offence. An accused can also be committed after a charge certificate has been filed or if you've had a case conference after the case conference certificate has been filed. Okay, well, thank you for listening to into our chat today about the important changes to how and when an accused can be committed for trial or committed for sentence. We strongly recommend that you go through the relevant parts of the Criminal Procedure Act to understand these processes more. You can find a link to um, the legislation as well as Legal Aid's EAGP Guide for Practitioners on the Legal Aid New South Wales website. Go to the tab for lawyers and look for the bar resources and tools. 
when you find early appropriate guilty pleas, it will take you to our webpage um, with those links. Tune in to our next podcast, the final in this series, during which we'll be tackling the new statutory sentencing discount scheme. Till next time.